Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. Two people join us today. Jeffrey Bloom works in the finance industry and is a longtime student and scholar of Orthodox Judaism. Rabbi Gil Student is active in the Rabbinical Council of America and is book editor of Jewish Action magazine. They've edited a collection of essays that I thought our listeners would appreciate. It's entitled Strauss, Spinoza, and Sinai, uh, Orthodox Judaism and Modern Questions of Faith, our topic today. Welcome, Mr. Bloom and Rabbi Student. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you, Mark. It's such a pleasure to be here. Good, good. We, we have both of you on. I, I, we, we usually don't have two guests, so I'm going to leave it to you two to, to work out who's going to talk. Who's going to interrupt? Up to you, gentlemen. So I'll uh, jump first. This is Jeff Bloom. I'll jump first because it makes sense chronologically to sort of give your listeners a sort of uh, explanation of who we are and what the book is and how we got together on the book. So the book, well, let me, let me begin. Let me, let me, let me begin, uh, uh, Jeffrey, by saying your introduction opens the book and you mention an autobiographical fact. I, I, I interrupt you because I think that no, leads right into your, your comment, reading something Leo Strauss wrote actually prompted you to, Take a big trip and, and make a big move. What happened there? Right. So to, to, to make a, a, a long story short, every, every, every convert and every person who comes back to a religious tradition, they love nothing more to talk than to talk about their journey back to the faith. So I'll try to make it short and sweet. Um, I grew up in a secular household in the suburbs of Chicago, went to college at the University of Chicago in the early 90s. Um, didn't studied with people who you might call Straussians or Strauss adjacent or influenced, but really didn't study Leo Strauss himself um, as a college student. Was in a kind of undergraduate great books program that they had at the University of Chicago. And after college, when I was working in Washington D.C., I sort of made uh, some initial tentative steps towards Orthodox Jewish observance. And during that time, I read an essay by Leo Strauss, which is a, a preface to a book that he wrote on Spinoza. And in that essay, he made arguments that helped me make being an Orthodox Jew something intellectually plausible. At the time, it felt socially plausible and appealing um, for all kinds of reasons, um, some, some of them autobiographical. I have a kind of, to be honest about it, a, a pretty typical um, Generation X kind of story. My parents were divorced when I saw Orthodox Jews and their family life. Uh, it appealed to me very deeply and rang a very deep bell. Um, but I didn't see it as something that was intellectually plausible, really, until uh, this, reading the Strauss essay. And 
the argument that he makes there is that you know the the, the supposed refutation of Orthodox Judaism by the Enlightenment, in particular by Spinoza, he sort of sees Spinoza as sort of the the, the starting um, you know shot in the Enlightenment um, is is overstated, and in fact that the the Enlighteners even had a certain degree of self-awareness that they were overstating it. And in a way, a very sort of um, uh, challenging statement he makes, he says, for all intents and purposes, the mockery of orthodoxy was the refutation. Um, They sort of laughed it out of the conversation. But he says that, in fact, there's reason to think that it should should be in the conversation to some degree. He makes, the, he makes the following argument. He says that if orthodoxy claims to know everything that it purports to um, believe, then it's going to be on shaky grounds. If it is willing to concede that it only believes its tenets, then it is on the same ground as the Enlightenment, which also only believes its initial tenets. Essentially, he I, I can't do justice to the, the whole argument there at the densely uh, argued essay, but the gist of it is that, as my understanding of it, is the way I try to articulate in the preface of the book, is that both the Enlightenment and, and Orthodox Judaism both stand on premises that cannot be refuted. They're, they're, they are two alternate and, you know, and conflicting interpretations of the, of the world, of, of the biblical texts, of the world itself, and they, each 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 side takes the same data and can interpret it in different ways based on whatever starting premise you begin with. If you start with the premise that there is the God of, of, of the Bible, uh, things look one way. If you start with the premise that there's not the God of the Bible, things look another way. So for me, this was a question, this, this sort of brought orthodoxy into the conversation, but I always wondered, Strauss himself was not orthodox. When I went to yeshiva, I was asking my teachers in yeshiva, is this our approach? Is this, is this what orthodox Jews really believe, how we think about um, defending our, our beliefs against the, the claims of the Enlightenment? And I asked my teachers at the time, had a number of conversations with people at the time, and then, you know, I started living an orthodox life. The question stayed with me, but was kind of dormant for many years. Later, I saw that, that other scholars point out that Strauss himself never really poses... In this essay that I'm talking about, orthodoxy is sort of what you call is a silent interlocutor. It never gets a chance to speak for itself. And when I read that, a light bulb went off, and I said to myself, um, I, I, that's what I was doing 20 years ago. I could do that again. Let, let me go and ask leading orthodox thinkers what they think. Do they think this is a, a good argument? Do they think it's an orthodox argument? Is this, do they have a better approach? And the first person that I would, you know, Good luck or, or blessed to take your interpretation, whatever your starting premise is, um, was Rabbi Gill's student. And he, the, the question resonated with him, the project resonated with him. He introduced me to Alec Goldstein, who brought, who's not here with us now, but is the third co editor and really deserves a, a more than a shout out. I mean, the book would not exist without his incredible uh, work editing and really kind of midwifing the, the actual hard, the hard work. I, I ran around getting people to contribute. Um, and, Al, and Alec really did the, the, the hard work of editing the essays and making, you know, so that's how we got here. Well, let me, let me ask R- Rabbi Student, was your 
initial encounter with Strauss, maybe Strauss generally, if not Strauss and on Spinoza, was that uh, uh, equally equally powerful? Well, Strauss is so fascinating because he had many great insights in his career in completely different realms. You know, on in political philosophy, he he broke new ground in um, in Maimonidean interpretation. He 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 just started a whole new new genre. Um, he really re revibrated. Uh, re that's not the right word. He he resurrected Maimonidean interpretation in the 20th century. Um, and neither of them have anything to do with what we're talking about. He started his career though as a young uh, Jewish philosopher in Berlin, and that's where he he got he he did some of his main Jewish philosophy. And there he also had insights. My first encounter with Strauss was really when it came to Maimonidean interpretation. And I am so opposed to his approach on the one hand. On the other hand, he started the conversation in the 20th century, and, and we're indebted to him for how much research has been done and how many essays and how much thought has been put into Maimonides uh, in the past 100 years. Um, but when it came to Strauss and Spinoza, I, 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 I understood what Jeff was telling me, but I don't think I was so... so um, so familiar with the specific arguments. And I took a look at it and I said, you know what? This is the kind of thing I've been talking about and thinking about for a while outside of Strauss. Let's bring it to Strauss, bring it to Spinoza, because Spinoza was a, really just a fundamental uh, character in the development of the modern era. Um, but he, he, he is a, Strauss uses him as a forerunner of Western civilization or, or modern Western civilization. And in many ways he is. Um, so let, let's let's bring it to that, and let's reach out to some of like like Jeff said, some of the great thinkers of today. Um, first things, readers will will certainly be familiar with Rabbi Shalom Karmi. He has an essay in his book. Uh, Rabbi Mark Gottlieb. He also has an essay in his book. And uh, we reached out to uh, all different kinds of thinkers, men and women. Um, and we I think we put together. We have a, a classical. Let's I wouldn't say a classical philosopher, but Josh Joshua Weinstein. Um, I'm sorry, Joshua Golding who goes through the proofs for God's existence, uh, but not as it was in the medieval time, or even as it was 50 years ago, but where are we today on those classical proofs and how do they fit in with Orthodox Judaism, which you know readers might be surprised. It's a little bit different than, than with uh, Christian thinking. Very similar, but th there are our own nuances. Um, so for example, one of the proofs that we would say that maybe some Christian thinkers would or maybe wouldn't, uh, and, and uh, is the Jewish history to us is just so miraculous. And I think it's it's closer to us because we've lived it through our, our grandparents, you know, what they've seen in their lives and, and the, the state of Israel flourishing today like it was in biblical times. I think we all can relate to that. Uh, but to me, I, I, my great uncle had an orchard in, in Israel. And when I went to visit him as a kid, I saw the trees in Israel, my own family there after 2000 years, that's mind blowing to me. Um, not a proof for God's existence or for the truth of the Bible, but to me, it, it's, it's it's stronger than that. It really speaks to me, and that's the kind of thing that uh, let's say Joshua Golding addresses. But others of us um, take different approaches to addressing the question of does Strauss make any sense? You know, well, uh, your your first contributor, uh, Jack Abramowitz, he says that Strauss simply gets Orthodox. Judaism wrong. And it turns on, 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 on this issue of the status of, of orthodoxy as knowledge or not. What, was, what does he say that what was Strauss's mistake there? 
Well, Strauss's focus, if 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 I could, and I'm I'm again I'm not speaking technically at all. That's not my area of expertise. Um, but Strauss seems to focus on has orthodoxy been disproven, and and he what his conclusion is it has not been disproven. So it could technically be knowledge, but it 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 hasn't been disproven. And if you would tell that to me on the street, I would say. Well, lots of things can't be disproven. If it's unfalsifiable, it can't be disproven. What, what have you given me? And, and for a lot of our contributors, that's a, the flaw in Strauss's thinking, is we don't want a religion that is not been disproven. We want a religion that's compelling, that's, that's lively and changes our lives. Um, and so Jack, that's what Jack Abramos, Rabbi Abramos, Rabbi Jack as he's called, Rabbi, Rabbi Jack said is that Judaism hinges on belief. Does it does it does it embody you, your your entire existence? Not has it been proven or disproven? I mean, very. I, I don't know of anybody whose life has been changed by any of these proofs for God's existence. I mean, it's, it's great philosophy. I don't know if it's great for a, a living living guide. If I can add something to that, it's funny you put it that way, Rabbi Sid, because a friend of mine, after he got the book, was very well read in in philosophy, an Orthodox Jewish friend of mine, um, said to me, were you, he asked me, were you offended by Rabbi Carmi's essay? And I said, I wasn't offended by it. Why, why would I be offended by Rabbi Carmi's essay? Because Rabbi Carmi comes into the picture and says, you know, basically, he says it nicely. He says he doesn't understand why anyone would find this argument appealing in the first place. What would this do for anyone in, in, in the first place? Is it, whether, whether it's not a, a good, whether it's an Orthodox Jewish argument, is it even a good argument in the first place? I think, which is what Rabbi Student is, 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 is voicing, and I and I think for me, and it's interesting, like the way Rabbi Student was coming at the things which excite him about Judaism are not necessarily the same things which excite me about Judaism because I'm coming from a very different place than he did. Part of it's autobiographical, part of it's temperament. All I what I needed from Strauss was really to put put Judaism in the conversation. For me, it was it was something when I was you know in college, it never even dawned on me to 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 participate in any kind of religious Jewish life. It just wasn't even in the horizon. So Strauss put put it in, in my horizon. I think one of his, his gifts, Rabbi Sudas talked about other areas where he contributes to scholarship. For me, one of his real gifts is to make plausible. Ideas that in our modern horizon, you know, might be just closed, we're just closed off from. Jeff, if I could, part of the reason that it wasn't even on your radar is the mockery of that the Enlightenment brought to religion. It, it not only attempted to argue against religion, it denigrated it so that after a, a generation or two, a few generations, it's not even on our radar because who would be, believe something so foolish? And and there, and that is not accomplished by argument. That's accomplished through media, through satire, through 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 plays. We saw that it, this this happened in the Jewish community. It happened all over the world. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you were looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy. 
all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. And, and we know to, to come back to, I think you, you brought up a, an important term, Rabbi, with the term compelling. You know, mockery can be very compelling. In, 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 sometimes in a way that a philosophical argument kind of leaves you cold. I mean, does, does Spinoza give us any compelling religion? And to, to, to your point, just before, before we even uh, talk to your question, to your point, as we know, living today, who has been setting the agenda for the past 15 years? It's these late night talk show hosts, you know, and all these comedians who, who people get their news from comedians because they find that compelling. And whoever they choose to deride and denigrate through humor, that, that tends to move, move the needle in, in our politics. And that's something Strauss points out. That's not a valid or fair argument. And I think that's a very important thing to keep in mind, something Strauss has brought to the table that we should not forget uh, when we look at our own lives and uh, today. But to, to your point, and, and this is part of Strauss's argument also, is that there are unstated assumptions. And Moshe Capel, Dr. Moshe Capel, in his essay in our book, uh, really highlights that, that both in, in Spinoza's worldview and in Orthodox worldviews, worldview, there are unstated assumptions, which make them to some degree similar in that there are, they are beliefs and not necessarily knowledge. And where Strauss leaves it is that both are unproved, um, and, and therefore he says that's the end of his argument. So you're saying what's compelling? Well, many people will say, well, science is compelling. I'm, uh, you fl we fly in airplanes, right? So therefore, religion must be wrong. Um, that, that argument doesn't fly, but there is a compelling aspect to science. And uh, in, um, if, if I could take a step back to the beginning of the Enlightenment, and this uh, Dr. Paul Franks discusses a bit in his article in the book, uh, there were two, broadly speaking, two responses to the Enlightenment among thinkers. One, what, and the Enlightenment really questioned the knowledge and tradition that had been accepted up to that point. One group of philosophers just said, we have to start fresh, throw everything out, or we're going to build everything new through science. The other, really uh, represented by Edmund Burke, um, they said, well, let's take it slow. Let's see, let's evaluate the traditions and beliefs that we have and sort through what needs to be revised and what is still valid and we, could, we should still accept. And the alternate view that throw everything out and start everything from scratch from science this, that Spinoza represents, that has failed. It has succeeded wi wildly in certain scientific realms, curing disease, creation, electricity, all sorts of gadgets that we have, uh, but it has not been able to produce any sort of ethics that is widely accepted and usable. And in many other areas of, of the soul, and even to some degree science as well, it, 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 has not, it has not succeeded. Now, if I believe, if I was a Spinoza believer, if I was a religious scientist or religious scientist, someone who really believes in science, I would say, okay, so there are still problems. We haven't figured it all out, but I believe that we will figure the rest out. And that is, to some degree, a religious belief. It's an anti-religious religious belief. I prefer, though, to take the, the Burke approach and say, yes, we have learned a lot of new things. We need to incorporate that into our thinking, but you can't throw out the baby with the bathwater. There are still ultimate truths. You know, not only the Talmud and the rabbis who for sure have something to say, but Plato and Aristotle have a lot to say about ethics as well. And that's all still valid today, even if we have a new way of, of a new science, a new way of looking at the world. 
I, I pulled a sentence on, on that, sort of related to that, out of uh, Shalom Karmi's essay, where he states, quote, Strauss assigns an outsized place to philosophical understanding. Gentlemen, you agree? Jeffrey? Yeah, I would agree. I mean, I'm not, there's, there's you know, there's other people who are bigger experts on, on Strauss than I am. So I can't, I don't want to speak to that with, with the pretense of being an expert. But I mean, I know enough about Strauss to know that he really, you know, he, he sought some kind of recovery of kind of pre-modern philosophy in, in Plato um, and, and in Socrates and kind of reread Maimonides through that lens. And, you know, I think that for him, you know, it's interesting. I got, I got feedback from a, 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 a Straussian, Straussian scholar who felt that we'd kind of thrown Strauss under the bus and then sort of painted him as a sort of disloyal Jew because really none of the essays embrace any of Strauss's answers. They, they, they respect and take seriously some of the questions that he raises, but no one's, you know, it, it's two cheers for the questions and not a lot of cheers for his, his answers. And, and I said back to the person, I, even, I said, no one's, it has nothing to do with Strauss being a, a good Jew, a loyal Jew, or, or anything of the sort. I think we're giving him a tremendous amount, as I said, I mean, I, I'm ever grateful to Leo Strauss for, for I mean, the thoughts I would not have otherwise considered. Um, but I, I'm not dedicating my personal life. You know, the Bloom family household is not dedicated to a recovery of, of pre-modern philosophy, uh, you know, a la Plato and uh, Plato. So, you know, I, I, life demands choices. The choice I've made in my own life is to build an Orthodox Jewish life. Um, but I, I think there is truth. I think, yeah, when I read that line from Rabbi Carmi, it really resonated with me. It, it, it sort of felt accurate. Yeah, I, I would I would agree that this goes back to something that I mentioned before. Nobody has, you know, one of the probably the strongest. Many will say the strongest proof for God's existence is the ontological proof, but no one's changing their life because of the ontological proof of God's existence. Because philosophy is very theoretical, and you know, Alec Goldstein, one of our, our co-editor, his article is really just focusing on seeing God's presence in your life. That is life changing, much more than any philosophical idea. And, and Strauss is very very much out there. But, but to, to what Jeff said, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs of Blessed Memory he used to say that when he, when he would come home from school every day, his mother would ask him, did you ask any good questions? You know, that's, that's the ultimate praise is to ask a good question that starts a whole conversation. And I think we, this is a tribute to Leo Strauss that a whole book of Orthodox thinkers are discussing his question. We might not agree with him, but uh, I, I think he's contributed tremendously. And, and so too with his Maimonides' interpretation, which I, I'm really not a fan of, uh, he, he, there's a whole school of thought called Straussian interpretation that uh, he started the conversation in the modern era, and, and it's to his credit. Well, what, can I just throw in a footnote on that? Rabbi Mark Gottlieb's essay, for, for, for people who are listening who are Straussians or Strauss adjacent or very interested in Strauss, his essay is just a very beautiful, I'd say very adult and mature with a ton of good judgment, assessment of kind of what does Orthodox Judaism do with Leo Strauss? And I think I think I think there's 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 a decent amount of of warmth and embrace that is really I think it's a, it's a it's a it's a wonderful essay that I just on this particular topic while we're here I just wanted to flag that. Rabbi, your your essay 
has a has a, a category here that I'd like you to explain. Faithful philosophy. Oh, what is that? So, so we, we I've spoken a bit about the response to the Enlightenment, and in the Orthodox Jewish community, we have a, we had our own thinkers who struggled with this because, like every other segment of society, we, we were dramatically affected by the changes in the in the 18th and the 19th centuries. And uh, one one of the there, there are really, I, I would say, broadly speaking, there are two approaches to, to, to philosophy. One is to just, a religious approach, one is to just say, not for me. I have no interest in it. It's, whether you call it heresy or not, you just say, I, I'll stick with my traditional texts and my traditional beliefs, and, and, and that's it. I don't, want, I don't want it in my house. The other approach is to take it in and to evaluate it and to see, well, what works with us? We have our, our beliefs, we have our approaches. And what, what informs us, what can help us think better about what we're doing and what we believe, and that, sh that is embraced. And in that respect, uh, I would say faithful philosophy is to follow the investigations of philosophy with the belief that in the end, truth meets truth. Tradition is truth. Revelation is truth on the one hand. On the other hand, philosophy is truth, which is really just human thinking, deep human thinking about truth. And eventually, revelation and human thought will meet. Now, we might not be there yet, but at some point, the, the two will meet because truth is truth, regardless of how you get there. At the end of your essay, you speak of the necessity of, quote, reframing the faith narrative. Uh, describe what you, what is the faith narrative and what needs to be done with it? And then I'll ask, I'll ask uh, Jeffrey to, to comment. Yeah, well, I, I, I should say that Jeff actually uh, urged me to, to think of those terms or, or think in those terms of how can we inculcate faith in the next generation for educators? And I'm, I'm not a professional educator, but I put out some thoughts there. And, and one of them is focusing on something that we've, we've talked about multiple times in our conversation, and that's about the mockery and the cynicism that um, Spinoza and, and the Western and the Enlightenment brought to this world and how to counter that. Now, one of the things that science and all the ideologies surrounding it have is that science is new, science is cool, science is shiny, uh, religion is old, the texts are dusty. So, you know, we have an, just a natural preference for the new, especially the younger generation always wants something new. So one of the strategies in which to eliminate, to, to level the playing field so that we can have equal, equal conversation time is to wrap religion in new wrapping paper. And, and, and this has been done over, over the past hundred years. Um, people might be familiar with Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik um, of Yeshiva University in Boston. His grandfather in Europe in the late 1800s revolutionized Talmud study uh, with just scientific approaches, which was not really new. It was just his uh, brilliant approach of, of addressing a Talmud subject gave it this intellectual excitement that is hard to describe to someone who has not been in it. It is so exciting, and it feels just as revolutionary and as new, even though you're really just learning Talmud the same way medieval commentators did. Uh, but he gave it this wrapping of, of, uh, of, of, of something of novelty, and that alone levels the playing field and says, okay, religion is cool and shiny, Philosophy or, or, or enlightenment thinking is cool and shiny. Now we can have an equal conversation. And uh, there are new methodologies in Bible study 
that have been emerging over the past 70 years or so, 75 years or so. Uh, Nacham Aleibos is one of the, uh, the, the, the main starters of this, which also using literary uh, approaches to analyze a text from a very traditional point of view, you come up with all sorts of new insights. And, and this has revitalized Bible study in the Orthodox Jewish community, and it gives people confidence. You know, it's, it's not just, uh, well, these are new thinkers and we're only using old thinkers, we must be outdated. Uh, and, and that is really only to, uh, uh, to avoid the mockery, the cynicism, and the feeling, the feeling of outdatedness um, so that we can make a decent presentation. And, and that, that alone for an educator will um, remove some of the appeal of the outside world uh, where, you know, especially nowadays with all these different technologies and the distractions, we need to have something that uh, is not equally distracting, but equally exciting for our students. And, and that's a challenge. And we need to come up with all sorts of ways just to be as exciting to capture people's attention and, and people's loyalty. I, just, I would just add one thing to that. Well, two things. I'd add two things. One is I, I, I Rabbi Student's idea about science being new. It's also that science works, as Rabbi Student alluded to before. It is so powerful. It is so... It succeeds and so it 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 it's it, 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 it's so it's so successful in so many realms that it, it I guess I'm just really repeating what Robinson said before it blinds us to the fact that it's not successful in all realms. That's one thing I would add. The second thing I would add is just this idea on this idea of cynicism. I, I recall when I was really new, brand new to Orthodox Judaism. I visited a friend who was studying at Yeshiva University. I never visited the campus before, and I was walking in the hallway. And as I was leaving, I saw this, this old man, black hat, dark suit, white shirt, you know, basically almost, you know, very, he could barely walk. And he was kind of walking slowly across the hallway, kind of hunched over. And I asked someone who it was. It turned out that this was Rev. Arn Salvechik, Rev. the Rav's, Rev. Salvechik's brother, who after the Rav died, came, flew every week from Chicago to fill in for his brother's uh, Talmud lecture, and at the time, the, 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 you know, the Salvatic name, which now is well known to me, didn't mean that much. I didn't know who the Salvatics were, who the Rub was, who the Rub's grandfather was. Once you become Orthodox, you have to become an expert in Salvaticism. But it, the, the, the broader point is, you know, I saw something I'd never seen before. It was, it was, it was preposterous. This man who could barely walk, you tell me he's getting on a plane once a week from Chicago to give a Talmud class. Why? You know, and I think I think anyone, wherever they are, whatever kind of faith community they're in, you have to see people who, they're it. They're the thing you're going for. You know, it can't just be in a book. It has to be some guy, someone who, they've got it. And, you know, you have to see those glimpses of those people. And, and, I, and it's hard. There's a lot of people who've had bad life experiences who it makes them extremely cynical about a lot of things. And, I, and you know, I can't argue with that. I mean, I'm not going to argue with someone's life. That's a tough argument to make. Oh, cynicism is so easy. Yeah, so, but so easy, you know. Uh, anyway, I didn't mean if, to if I could rephrase what Jeff is saying. Uh, uh, the antidote, to, the antidote to cynicism, is exposure to saintliness. Yeah. And I, I, I remember Rabbi Aaron Selovich. I used to see him every morning, and I would see him do that walk. The just the agony that he went through just to study Torah, to pray was just unbelievable, so inspiring. And then when you talk to him, and I spoke with him, uh, he, he was just a, a man, a very caring, deeply passionate man about religion and about about individuals, deeply ethical man. 
And I, I've had the, the privilege of encountering such people in my life who are just so deeply saintly. And that, that to me, when, I, when I, we sit back and we read the news and we say, oh, it's all about money, it's all about power. Uh, but when you have that personal exposure, it really it, 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 it helps you get past the cynicism that is so endemic to our, to our culture. Yeah. The book is Strauss, Spinoza, and Sinai, Orthodox Judaism and Modern Questions of Faith. Uh, Jeffrey Bloom and Rabbi Student, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Mark. A pleasure. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.